Today's Old Testament text can be found in Jonah 1. The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to, for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind to the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call your God. Maybe he will take notice of what of us, so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind, what kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, of the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Take me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and, I, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wild, wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have, have done as you pleased. Then the raging sea grew calm. At this, at this men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and, the Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Today's text would be written or read from Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and, and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. He had began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to, to the point of death. Stay here and keep with me. Going a little farther, the, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to the, di- to the disciples and found them sleeping. He, could the men not keep watch with, them, with me for one hour? He said to Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may, you, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? 
Look at the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed with it into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I confess from the outset that my place with God doesn't necessarily warrant the way in which I approach him, but I take great uh, courage from a psalmist named David and from 12 disciples who didn't always know how to approach the Lord either. And David, who was so candid in his conversations with his father, with God. And in my candid conversations, I have said, okay, time out, enough. I appreciate that life is one big growth opportunity, but I've grown enough for a while. We need to take, Lord, a little moratorium on growth opportunities. Because any more development, and I'll just be too spectacular of a human being. I have uh, negotiated uh, delays in growth opportunity. And yet somehow uh, they continue to present themselves. That moment in which you behave as though you wish you wouldn't have, or as you wish you wouldn't have, and must summons yet another apology. That series of thoughts you continue to think that remain self-defeating as you want to move your life forward. That habitual failure that drives you to some point of distraction or laziness or something else that has to be addressed in a particular crisis, in a particular time, in a particular way. Growth opportunities in dealing with people who are, from a human standpoint, difficult to deal with. And dare I say, even difficult to love. And yet the call of God on our lives is to love one another. And in my particular line of work, sometimes I have to listen to stories where I just want to smack people. Is that too candid? A confession? Because the answer seems to me, in my particular point of view, so obvious. Or I want to, I don't know, I want to shake my head and, and breathe a sigh and say I'm not sure there's hope. And yet God is the God of hope. And I'm stretched again to find the faith to share. Okay, enough about that. As a human being, like you, I am constantly challenged to go new places, to try new things, to experience new challenges that I don't think I'm up to and frankly, don't always want to take on. And I know, because I've been with you for five years, that most of you experience, if not all of you, exactly the same thing. Who wants to have to face a growth opportunity? Who wants to have to admit that they're wrong? 
who wants to have to change course in life yet again, who wants to have to think through, devise through, pray through, exercise faith through, something that appears impossible. And we all have to do it. And difficulty comes into our lives, difficulty we didn't ask for and don't think we deserve. Interesting how we use that language of deserving, isn't it? And we don't deserve the fortune that we have either. Some of you would like to argue with that. Oh no, I earned that. Let's consider where you were born and the time and circumstances in this planet and let's consider the economy that you're a part of, which happens to be one of the greatest ever, even in difficult times. If you've traveled, you've gone to countries where people have maybe very little and little opportunity. It might inform you about some of the things you don't have control over. We don't deserve, per se, the the blessings that are ours any more than we deserve the hardships, the challenges, the points of brokenness. I went to grade school with the most beautiful blonde girl named Ivana. And she wasn't a blonde in any other sense of the word. Intelligent, funny, talented, capable. Pray for this girl. She's my age and battling cancer. And it's aggressive. And she's faithful. And she's up. And she's hopeful. And she's got a great husband and a couple of kids. And she is willing herself to live. God bless her. She doesn't deserve what's coming her way. And I don't know if she'll pass to the, uh, pass through it or not. I can't say. It's just something that's come into her life. Like things come into our lives. That's why when people get married, the pastor usually insists on a traditional set of vows. I know it's very popular to write your own, and I'm all for that. But the whole thing about for richer or poorer tends to address the vicissitudes of experience in life. Those moments of crisis and challenge we can take us where we don't want to go, but give us growth opportunities. In sickness and in health reminds us that not every time is going to be an easy or a good time. For better or worse. There's something about that whole notion that moves us in the direction of accepting these challenges, these ups and downs, vicissitudes, these difficulties. And these happen in all of our lives, whether we're youth, even children, or whether we're very old. It seems you reach maturity and you think, okay, I ought to know what I ought to know. And yet there are still things to learn. That really ticks me off. I don't know about you. I think I should know better and I don't sometimes. Anybody been there? Oh, good. That's just the worst feeling in the world. I'm an adult. I should know this. I, I don't. I haven't experienced that. I have to learn. The Bible is full of characters and they're familiar to you. So I'm not going to give you a sermon today that's a revelation of something you've never looked at. You have studied these characters, most of you, before. 
but just a recount. The Bible is full of these characters who've been taken kicking and screaming to places they didn't want to go. And God used these terrible things in their lives and used them to accomplish phenomenal things. Phenomenal things. Think about our friend Joseph. Favorite son of the favorite wife. Eldest son of the favorite wife. Not the eldest son of all of the sons of Jacob. Just the eldest of the favorite one. And oh, favoritism has its price. And the rest of the brothers didn't particularly like Joseph. And he was, after all, a bit of a dreamer, wasn't he? Hey, Mom, Dad, I had this great dream. The stars and the sun and the moon all bowed down to me. I was out in the field and the sheaves. Anyway, one day his father asked him to take his brothers some food and provisions and to greet them and see how they were doing tending the sheep. Joseph put on his coat, beautiful coat, a very specially made coat with multiple colors and intricate threading. And he took the cheeses and supplies and began to walk. And he went his distance, and when his brothers saw him coming in the distance, they hatched up a very cruel plan. He was tossed into a pit, and some of them were even talking of killing him. But conveniently, Amalekite traders came along, I say conveniently because it may have saved his life. Amalekite traders came along in caravan and they decided that selling him for some silver was a great idea. So they sold him as a slave. They tore up his robe and dipped it in goat's blood and took it back to his father who assumed the worst. A wild animal had killed him on the way. And Joseph, without recourse, without consideration without his family's knowledge that he was alive and in need of rescue, was in a caravan bound as a slave headed for Egypt. The Amalekites probably doubled or tripled their money on him. I would venture to say he was treated poorly along the way, but in good enough shape to fetch a price and go to a good household, captain of the guard, Potiphar's household. Now, I don't know what my attitude would be in such a circumstance, but I tend to think I would be a bit resentful. Certainly very angry at the betrayal. Saddened beyond measure at the loss of family. And not sure that I would ever get a hold of the new language. And definitely confused by the anger and direction put toward me as I tried to do what I could understand I was being told to do. And ultimately succeeding only to be betrayed by a wife of the captain of the guard who would seduce me. Jail 
having a dream and helping out two guys who stand before the king only to have both of them forget, one because he was executed and the other because he forgot. We'll give the guy with the execution a, a break there on the forgetting part. And it isn't until years later that the king has a dream that requires interpretation and Joseph is remembered. It's a very, very hard story. And yet God uses this, as Joseph will say in his own words, God had a plan that a nation might be saved and that his people might be preserved. Because you remember the story. Grain stored up, Jacob and family coming to Egypt, provision made, seven years of famine and they're taken care of and reestablished. And they multiply and grow. Now, it's interesting because for both Joseph and my next example, Daniel, there is absolutely no intimation, no suggestion at all in Scripture that they were bitter, that they were angry, that they felt betrayed, that they were sad. There's no indication of the actual treatment they received except for the... uh, Potiphar's wife incidents and the jailing and that sort of stuff. We have to just historically infer those pieces. But having said that, it's, it's difficult to imagine that as a human being, Joseph didn't have to process those feelings. What's interesting is that by the time his brothers approach him, as a man in his place and an adult, he's no longer bitter. He's no longer angry if he ever was. He's no longer... Does he have any thoughts of getting back at them or any of those pieces if he had those thoughts in the first place? Those thoughts are gone because even though he was taken forcibly, he's come to understand that God is using him for something incredible. Daniel was a prince in Judah, part of the royal household, hauled away without ceremony by one of the first great kingdoms, Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was a different kind of king. The Babylonian Empire was a different kind of empire. It was a we-will-assimilate-you kind of empire. And so he was indoctrinated in everything Babylonian. The story that he's really famous for early on is avoiding the meats at the king's table. We usually read two things into that. One, that they were blessed by idols, and therefore to eat the meat would be an acknowledgement of a foreign god. And secondarily, because they were probably not clean. And Daniel and his friends would maintain their Jewishness in that way. Any uh, reference to vegetarianism is probably misplaced there. So Daniel himself goes through this process of education and while it's not explicitly mentioned, was no doubt a eunuch, one who served in the court of the king. No progeny. Now, if you ask anybody Jewish what the meaning of life is, it's progeny. One of the texts we read last week talked about the eunuchs who are cut off, who have no inheritance, who have no progeny, 
and the Lord will give them, put the memorial up for them within his tabernacle and give them a name which will endure forever. It speaks to that loss. Daniel suffered that loss and ended up serving under not just Nebuchadnezzar, but every successor until the time of Persia. I can't imagine that initially it wasn't very distressing to be hauled away. I can't imagine that it wasn't heartbreaking to be pulled from his home and homeland. I can't imagine that he was always treated kindly on a journey. I can't imagine that he didn't have moments of resentment. And I can't imagine that as he was forced to become a eunuch, he didn't mourn that loss as well. But whether he went kicking or screaming or not, the scripture gives us no reference of any ill feeling or bad attitude on Daniel's part. Only that he stayed true to his God. He trusted his God at the end of the day. And God used him phenomenally. Just think about how important his visions are, even to us as a church, these thousands of years later. And what are we, 2,500 years later now, roughly? Something akin to that, 24, 25, 100 years later. So, that brings us to our next candidate, Jonah. I don't know about you, but sometimes anyway, I'm a bit like Jonah. Not always. There are actually times when we're all probably a bit like Joseph or a bit like Daniel. We're not all together uh, into avoidance. There are things we jump right into as people. There are things we embrace. There are things we hit head on, things we're willing to fight, things we're willing to take on. Jonah, however, gets the call to go to Nineveh in Assyria and will have nothing to do with it. Now, I just love this story for multiple reasons. One, Jonah is a prophet of the living God. Now, wouldn't you think the contract there was God speaks, God commands, and Jonah does? You would think that was the command. That was the chain of command and the way things would work. Apparently, in all of this, Jonah had a choice. And he booked himself on a ship headed for Tarshish, Spain. Opposite direction. You know the story well. It was read in part just this morning. Jonah gets out on the Mediterranean there, and a great storm comes up. Now, I have several things to share about this which you might find interesting. In fact, Dr. Fritz Guy talked about some of these things a Sabbath or two ago at Glendale City Church. One of them is ancient Near Eastern cosmology, the sort of cosmology or understanding of the way the world is ordered that gave rise to Genesis. And the story there was the theme of, of his talk and Dr. Bull's talk. But from that cosmology, you learn a couple of important things. One is that what was missing from the model of ancient cosmology was evaporation. So the ancients did not understand the rain cycle. So if you have 
water in the ancient world, here's how it was done. You have a firmament or terra firma. You have water underneath that firmament. You have, uh, that's probably the wrong word, earth, I think is the word I want to use there. Water's under the earth. Then you have sort of atmosphere or the first heaven or heaven. And then you have firmament. And firmament in the uh, Old Testament is used to describe where the heavens are. So they're encompassing. And it's like a structure, physical structure, that the stars and the moon and the sun inhabit and are stuck in. And this is the source from where clouds and other things come. And there are waters above that firmament. firmament. So you have water above the earth, water below the earth. But what they're missing is the cycle of evaporation. So that when rains come, it is literally an act of God who from the space beyond the heavens orders the waters to be poured forth. So for a storm to come of any kind, a wind, a strong wind, a rain, it was an act of God. And if it was an act of God, the fault could be determined because there was no such thing as chance either. They were missing the concept of evaporation and they were missing the concept of chance. So when we read the story of Jonah, we find the storm coming up, it becoming alarming, and those manning the boat deciding that somebody had done something and this needed to be solved so that the God would be appeased or gods would be appeased and this terrible storm threatening their ship and everything on it would be saved. So they cast lots. We don't know exactly what that was. It could have been... um, akin to reading tea leaves or tossing stones and seeing what the pattern was or uh, putting names on something and and drawing them out. It, It could have been a variety of things, but it was what we would understand to be something of a chance happening, although Moses did this too, didn't he? Guided by God. In which the person identified would be the person responsible. And interestingly enough, the lots work, the story of Jonah. He is identified as the culprit, and they go to him and say, what have you done? The gods are very angry. What you've done must be really terrible. Resolve it now, and Jonah owns it. I am running from God. Not just any God. I'm running from the God who made this sea, who made the firmament, who made the dry land, I'm running from the creator God, the Lord of heaven and earth. Can you imagine the horror on the faces of those sailors? Well, no wonder we're in trouble. They don't want to do what he suggests, which is to throw him overboard. They've been throwing cargo overboard. But they consent and ask the Lord of heaven and earth not to hold it against them that they have killed this man. And they throw him overboard, but the Lord has prepared a big fish. Must have been a pretty big fish. And Jonah ends up three days later on the shore with a moment to reflect and recover and decides that that wasn't such a great plan he had hatched. How could Nineveh be any worse? 
And he goes, and part of why he doesn't want to go is he's afraid of success. <laughs> I'm, I'm sometimes, I hate to say, afraid of success. Are you afraid of success sometimes? No? Nobody's afraid of success? I bet you are. Success can mean all kinds of things sometimes. Jonah is, he knows God, that God is slow to anger and merciful and gracious and forgiving and long-suffering, and he is just sure that these people don't deserve any of that. And he goes and he delivers his message, and he's horrified when he's the most successful evangelist in history. The entire town, probably 200,000 people, put on sackcloth and ashes, cease from what they're doing, and repent before the Lord, including the king. I have never heard of an evangelist achieving that before. Never. Never heard of a prophet having such outrageous preaching success. Jonah must have been quite a preacher. I doubt very much he was walking through the streets mumbling, you know, better get your act together, this is going to be destroyed. Uh, you know. He must have been quite a preacher. But people believed. And so he goes outside the city waiting for the Lord to destroy these believing people. And he's so angry that God has dishonored him in this way and spared their lives. Sounds so silly, but sometimes we're just like that. We're so angry that something good has happened to undeserving people, not realizing that we may be in that very category. Sometimes we're so hesitant to step out and do something difficult because we're afraid it might actually work. Sometimes we just want to run and go our own direction. Enough of the growth opportunities. I need a break. I'm not going to go to Nineveh. While Jesus didn't go kicking and screaming to the cross, we do see the struggle. In Gethsemane, he asks the question, if it's at all possible, my Father, take this cup from me. My suffering is huge. Take it. If there's any other way, take it. And at the end of the day, he has to say, not my will be done, but yours. Because the will of Jesus in that moment was that the cup pass from him. And that is the burden we all carry when something hard comes to us, when something difficult, painful, something we need out from under, when that comes. And you know our Savior went to the tree, and you know he died. And we know that he did not see at that moment the future, the outcome, but three days later rose. And he ascended and he sits on high. And our lives have been forever changed because we cannot imagine what life would be like had he demanded that that cup be taken from him. And so as we face life's challenges, 
as we face life's struggles, as we run smack into the sliding glass door of life's pains and problems. We have the chance to be taken by God somewhere we haven't been before. We have the chance to do something for Him. We have the chance to experience something great. And if it takes us kicking and screaming, that's where we need to go. Because in the end, I believe I, and I believe almost all of you, want to go where he's going to take us. And so, Lord, I pray that you will bless this people, bless us, as we seek to go where you want us to go. For so often, we lack the courage, the energy, the will, and yet we want to go where you want us to go, Lord. Thank you. Amen.